Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. I'm Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter, joined as always by the scrappy do to my Scooby Doo, <laughs> Brandon. I appreciate that. I really like that scrappy do. So that's good. <laughs> scrappy do. Uh, scrappy do was a little bit after my time, but uh, I, I have some vague memories of Scrappy. The '80s. The '80s. Yeah, you you're a bit behind me. So um, was that a was a Scooby Doo like an after school cartoon you watched? I mean, only on the weekends. Uh, Scrappy Doo was actually on more than Scooby Doo was. So did Scrappy have his own show? Yep, in Dang. the '80s, I believe. Spinoff. Well, Brandon, what's what's up? We're gonna get uh, by the time this this podcast airs. Uh, I think it's gonna be like seventy degrees, man. You ready for that? More than ready. <laughs> I'm so sick and tired of the cold. <laughs> I saw somebody on Twitter uh, yesterday wrote like, "I'm a huge Minnesota booster, but this winter has broken me." <laughs> Third largest snowfall in history. Yeah, and. Like the first month of March where we didn't hit 50, the, the temperature of 50 since like the 80s or something. Um, yeah. It's been a rough one, man. It's been a rough one, but uh, I tried to warm myself up by talking to a dude in Florida. <laughs> I mean, that works. He was like, it's 90 degrees where I am, so... And yeah, it's just just talking with property. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just talking with my son this morning at breakfast, and we were talking about our turkey hunting plans. Um, as I think I've mentioned before, I'm going to be in Western Minnesota for turkey opener, where I've got a, a preaching gig at a Lutheran church, um, along with some turkey hunting. And then we'll go up north after that. But, I mean, if there's still two feet of snow in the woods, there's not going to be much turkey hunting. Um, so we're going to probably have to wait a little bit this year, which is fine. And we still got to get you out there. Yeah, I mean, I got to shoot a real wild bird sometime. Yeah, we're going to – I've been uh, – I've been, I've been slowly reminding our – our buddy Scott Franzen about uh, getting you out. So I know listeners are just on the edge of their seats waiting to hear <laughs> you tell the story of shooting your first bird on the wing or missing my first bird. <laughs> you'll miss, but I mean, hopefully you'll hit one too. Even if we got to like, uh, I don't know, toss one up for you or <laughs> clip its wings or something. <laughs> I mean, we, we can't make it too easy for me. No, no. <laughs> Well, I'm turning in the manuscript of my book uh, probably on the day this podcast comes out, Monday the 17th, um, and it will be in the hands of my editor, Richard Brown, for a couple weeks. I'm also going to send it out to a couple friends who've read earlier iterations of this book, and then um, I'll get it back and spend the month of May working on revisions and edits and tightening everything up. And then uh, by the end of May, the book manuscript will go into what they call into production, which is a process of copy editing, then back to me, then proofreading, then back to me, then typesetting, then back to me. Um, it's funny. It's uh, book publishing, unlike podcasting, Brandon, it's an old-fashioned business. 
it, it got, takes a little yeah. bit more time than me just editing an episode. Well, I mean, <laughs> this is the funny thing, man. It, it's just it, it's just so counter to what so much else that we do in the world in that, you know, my book will come out in a year. I'm just finishing it up now and it'll it'll come out like 11 months from now, which the yeah, the pace that we turn around content these days um is like it's just unheard of i mean think of producing a podcast episode and then having it come out a year later that's wild that's so cool though i mean it's cool but you also i do there are times when i'm wondering like what's going to be the state of the world a year from now are we even going to have a functioning government uh will (laughs) Is it real? You know, will, will AI be writing all of the books? So people be like, I don't want a book by a human. I I'd rather have a book on the outdoors by an AI bot. <laughs> I mean, it's easy. I'd prefer it too. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. I don't know what's going to happen, but the book, you know, uh, uh, should come out. I'm just going to keep uh, updating listeners on that. And yeah, so uh, that's what's going on. As I already mentioned, we've got a Floridian on the podcast today. Captain Rick Hilliard is uh, a fishing charter pilot and guide. Um, he is on the east coast of Florida. He takes people out fishing on the uh, intercoastal waterways uh, between, you know, I don't know, mangroves and uh, the oceans on the other side but he's on the it's just pretty incredible this guy takes people fishing in you know like 12 inches of water that you can that is he calls it gin clear um so anywho uh it's pretty i think it's pretty cool talking to him it's just very different from anything i've ever done and it's it 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 makes for a good kind of educational bit and a good conversation plus the guy uh, has a master's in theology and had thought, you know, for much of his life that he was going to be a missionary in a foreign land and and ended up as a fishing guide. So hearing that journey is pretty interesting, too. Um, you're going to be able to find his information, the link to his website in the show notes. You can also look him up uh, on Instagram and follow him there. Yeah, if any, if any of you listeners end up on one of his uh on his skiff fishing with him for a day i'd love to hear about it i hope to get down there and do it i think it'd be fascinating um and also you know while you're poking around online feel free to give us a review um give us you know a thumbs up on your favorite podcasting app and help us spread the word about the reverend hunter podcast if you like the content here really appreciate you listening and here is my conversation with Rick Hilliard, Captain Rick Hilliard, also Master of Theology Rick Hilliard from New Smyrna, Florida. Here it is. Hey, Captain Rick, thanks for coming on the Reverend Hunter podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tony. I'm, I'm stoked to be here. Captain, how long have you been a captain? So I've been a captain for two years now, um, but I've have had a boater's license since I was 12. Yeah. Yep, me too. I did the uh, I did the boater safety way back in the day. But what does it mean to be a captain? Is it uh, is it something official? Is it something you uh, earn over time, or is it like an actual licensure kind of thing, or what? 
Yeah, a little bit of both. Um, it's it's through the United States Coast Guard. Um, so you have to take a course. You have to have, uh, depending on which level uh, uh, license you have, you have to have a certain amount of days on the water, inland, offshore. Um, and then it's a few tests and a couple weekends course, and you're a captain. Fantastic, man. Do you wear a captain's hat? <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> I, I think my wife would make fun of me too much. Oh, well, that's what wives are for. Exactly. I mean, I often say that, um, you know, I'm like, I'm the only guy with a PhD in theology in the duck blind. You know, (laughs) I'll look up and down the duck blind. Nobody else has that. Yeah. And are you, is it the same being a um, captain of a, of a fishing skiff out there that you are the only guy with a master's in theology doing that? I, I'm maybe there's another one of us out there, but I have, I've yet to find them. I'm. So far, I'm the only one. So before we get into your story, tell us, uh, tell us where you are. You're look, you look out your window today. What do you see? So right now, I'm actually in a retirement, uh, <laughs> a retirement neighborhood. Um, I, I was telling Brandon, I live on 10 acres with very spotty Wi-Fi on a dirt uh, road. And mm-hmm. so I'm actually at my father-in-law's house uh, because he has much better Wi-Fi. But it is sunny and 90 degrees with winds out of the south about 15 knots it is it's pretty beautiful that's awesome dude and what part of the world are you in so i am in new smyrna beach florida uh, about an hour east of orlando okay so you're on the east coast of florida i am and i can see the uh the intercoastal waterway right now the the area that i guide oh dude okay so uh, if you were sitting on that 10 acre piece of land what would you be looking at what's it uh what's it like I'd be looking at um, some mini donkeys, some goats, some pigs. Uh, we have chickens. Uh, to my wife's chagrin, I came home with 51 chicks the other day. So they are right outside our door in a trailer. Um, so I'd be, but I'd be seeing we have a pond and a lot of woods. We are uh, surrounded and tucked away in the wild. It's pretty cool. Now, I mean, okay, this shows my ignorance, but I would not think on the coast on the coast of Florida that there'd be like uh, a 10 acre spot that a 32 year old guy could afford that there, first of all, <laughs> that there would even be a 10 acre spot available at all. I, I, my experience of, of the Florida coast is that it's so built up. So how'd you, how'd you come to be a homesteader like that in Florida? Yeah. So we, um, it, we have an unbelievable situation. Like I said, I mean, we're on a dirt road uh, that's maybe six miles long, and there's maybe eight other properties on it, hmm. um, surrounded by wetlands. Uh, but I'm 10 minutes from where I launched my boat. I am 20 minutes from the beach. Um, we got in about two and a half years ago, three years ago. Um, and I mean, the, what we paid for our place is unbelievable. It's extremely affordable. We live in a very small, uh, almost like a tiny home right now. And we're working on building a, a more sustainable home for our family. But, um, I mean, we, we paid less for our property than most people would pay for, for something much, much smaller. I don't even understand how that's possible. Yeah, we got lucky. We knew someone, (laughs) I mean, it's, it's a, it's a road that it's hard to get in. Most of the people that have been there have been there forever. And mm-hmm. we have a friend that lives here and he called us one day when something came available and we hopped right on it. Dang dude. It's awesome. So are you guys uh, working toward being self-sustainable? Like what are, 
all those, uh, all that livestock, um, what, what are the uses for that? Is it mainly for food or what you got a petting zoo or what? <laughs> uh, I would like to be more sustainable. My wife loves pets. So we, um, ah. I mean, we're working towards, uh, right now I I've told my wife, you know, I love all our pets, but we need to have animals that either produce food or money moving forward. Um, so we're working towards that. We definitely want to do the homesteading thing. Uh, the goats, uh, we, you know, we want to do goat milk and goat cheese, obviously chickens. Uh, we raise for meat and for eggs. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to get a cow and start raising, you know, cows here and there. Um, and we definitely have, so about half of our property is uncleared. And so we have feeders out and are, are working towards being able to hunt it as well. Oh, wow. And what would you hunt down there? So I, I've shot a turkey on our property. Okay. Um, we've killed plenty of wild, there's plenty of wild boars. Um, our property was, had sat vacant before it went on the market for a couple of years. So it was, it was pretty overrun with hogs. Mm -hmm. Um, we have deer, uh, nothing like what you have. I mean, they're, we call them swamp donkeys down here. They're, they're <laughs> tiny. Um, but yeah, we would, I, I, I haven't taken a deer yet. They're not quite to the size that we feel, uh, yeah. they should be harvested. Um, Wild boars, man. I've heard mixed reviews on um, how edible they are. Yeah, so I'm, you know, as we'll we'll find out in this, I'm I'm pretty new to hunting. One of my oldest friends is an avid hunter. He's the one that set up all the tree stands and deer feeders and and the first hog we took, he took it was the first animal he ever took with his bow. Um, it was a sow. She was pretty large. She had some small piglets. So she definitely was still nursing. Um, so I don't know if that made a difference, but from what we got off of her, she was delicious. Really? Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, pan fried pork back straps. Um, yeah. but I mean, I, I would, I would continue to eat them if I have, if I can take them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, from what I've heard too, is there's, um, plenty you know if you've got feral pigs man they they can do a ton of damage so people go after them for sure yeah we see them in in droves down here yeah and how about um uh pythons you got any you got any loose you got any feral <laughs> pythons because i know there's like isn't the people release their pythons into the everglades like they're pets that they don't want anymore they do right? that that's a little south of us um okay Actually, when I was in Bible college, uh, my roommates and I had planned to go, you know, like Florida Wildlife Commission will pay you to go help kill pythons down there. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had planned to go and I think school or finals or something got in the way. But, but yeah, I mean, they still do that. You can go hunt pythons. We don't have any up by where we're at. Uh, we have water moccasins and, you know, a lot of different garden varieties, but I've, yeah. I've yet to see a python near us. Well, for future reference, uh, hunting trumps Bible college, bro. I mean, you know, if I'd only had learned that back then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of Bible college, um, how'd you grow up? Tell us, take us on this journey that got you from, uh, from Bible college to being a fishing guide. Yeah, it's, it's really, I always tell people it's kind of a funny, I grew up in a very, very split home. So my parents were separated um, from the time I was about five years old until I was 12 or 13. Uh, never got divorced, ended up getting back together. But um, my mom was a hardcore Christian, had me growing up in a, a very conservative evangelical church. 
Um, and my dad owned sports bars and biker bars and nightclubs. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so I always joke, like I grew up running around church, but, um, I also like kept my Hot Wheels cars in a crown Royal bag. Um, so definitely a very unique, uh, childhood, um, grew up very, very passionate about my faith. Um, I had an unbelievable youth pastor growing up who is the reason I ever wanted to go into ministry. He's the reason, um, you know, when he left our church, it was like, it was harder than losing a grandparent. I mean, in so many ways, he was like a spiritual father to me and, uh, just an unbelievable guy. And so I grew up very passionate about the Bible. Um, very passionate about my faith from a young age. I knew I wanted to go into ministry. Um, I always said I want to work in a church and then also be a fishing guide on the side. Uh, and so, you know, even from a young age, I knew what Bible college I was going to. It was where my youth pastor had gone. It was the the tradition that my my church came from. And so, what, what brand of church is that that you were in? So it was Christian Church Church of Christ uh, from mm-hmm. the Restoration Movement. Um, instrumental or non instrumental? Instrumental, instrumental. Okay, yeah. all right, all right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we thought the the non instrumental ones were the crazy ones. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just so listeners uh, know, I mean, part of this restorationist movement is like. There's, uh, uh, like so many movements, there's like always a more conservative version and a more progressive version. And the more conservative version of Church of Christ churches don't have any instruments. They sing all acapella. But you were with, so those guys are like, you were at least in like the mid 20th century because you actually had instruments and music uh, along in your church. Well, yeah, and then and then to refer to it as progressive in any way is hilarious. It's crazy, I um, know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like slightly, like a half a tick to the left of the Church of Christ people who don't have instruments. Correct. That might be the only difference. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I I don't have any negative experiences growing up in church. Um, that from other people, I mean. I had unbelievable people around me. Uh, I feel like I had a really good foundation in the Bible. Um, looking back, I mean, in a lot of ways, it it probably would be a fundamentalist church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just understanding my upbringing. And, and part of me doesn't understand. I'm trying to, to delineate between if they were as fundamental as I remember, or maybe I projected that, or maybe I was so hardcore about it that I, you know, was kind of ramped it up. But but I mean, I grew up in the time of left behind and dispensationalism yeah. and, um, you know, hardcore. The Bible is inspired, infallible and errant. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a very, a very strict kind of upbringing in that sense. And it was great, but I always did kind of feel a sense of, you know, I grew up with missionary kids and pastor's kids and being, uh, my parents were separated and my father owned bars. It was like, I always kind of had this chip on my shoulder. Um, and even going into Bible college, you know, just kind of, again, I went to a very small conservative Bible college of the same exact, uh, thread as the church I grew up in. And so, you know, missionaries, kids, pastors, kids, and just kind of feeling like, uh, you know, I, I know I love Jesus. I know I'm passionate about ministry, but I, I don't quite fit the mold in some ways. Yeah. And I, I mean, just, I, I'm guessing based on what you're telling me about that, um, the fact that you then went for your master's degree at Fuller Seminary was that people were like, what? That's a crazy liberal place. <laughs> yeah, which is funny because I, you know, I would almost think now I'm maybe to the left of Fuller. 
Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I aren't love- we all? Aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I teach at Fuller. I teach at Fuller and I'm to the left of Fuller. So, and they know it. I mean, I'm not, this isn't like a huge reveal or whatever, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. For sure. And that's one of the reasons I love Fuller, I think. Um, but yeah, so I ended up at Fuller. Uh, so long story short, I ended up, you know, I went to Bible college. I was going to be a church planner in Florida. Never, you know, I grew up surfing and fishing. I never want to be more than five minutes from the ocean or the river. Uh, had my plan set and ended up going on a short-term mission trip in between my junior and senior year of college um, for two months to an eight, uh, a country in Southeast Asia and just fell in love with the idea that there are unreached, unengaged people groups. Um, and that, I mean, I think more intensely than I've ever felt in my life. And I might question now whether that was God's calling or just, you know, my own fervor, but but like this idea that I, I didn't want to plan a church where there are churches, you know, I wanted to go somewhere where, where people yeah. weren't, you know, I mean, I, yeah. every, the Paul, Paul and Romans saying, you know, I aspire to preach where Christ has not yet been named. And, you know, I wanted to be that tip of the spear, the guy going to the far reaching edges of the earth. And, uh, you know, I ended up coming back from that trip and was like, that's what I'm doing. I alienated most of my Bible college friends because I, just was a jerk to them because they weren't also going to the far reaching edges of the earth. Mm. Um, and from then on, I mean, that was my laser focus. I had never wanted to live outside of Florida before that. Um, ended up getting connected with a church in Southern California that had a passion for that, that area of the world moved out there a couple of days after college, um, graduated, drive, drove across the country, lived out there for a year as an intern. Um, I will say it was near really good surf. And so that's, that was a plus that, that drove, yeah. and the, the country I lived in also has very good surf. Um, but from there, I, I lived in California for a year. That's where I met my wife. Um, and then I ended up back in overseas for almost a year as a single guy came back. My wife and I dated, got married, um, and then eventually moved to Florida. And throughout this whole time, we were still pursuing uh, you know, moving overseas. And that was our, our ultimate goal. We worked for a church for a little while here in Florida, um, as youth pastors, it was unbelievable. And, uh, we ended up moving back overseas, um, towards the end of 2019. Um, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with what happened in 2020, but we very quickly got sent home, uh, within the first year of being in language school, uh, just because we didn't have the right visa and the country just wasn't going to renew us. And so we, we got forced out of the country pretty quickly. Um, and then is that when you started on your master's degree when you got back? So I actually ended up taking my master's degree. I had to take a few courses through the uh, missions organization that we were working with. Um, and Fuller was one of the schools that partnered with our org and Mm -hmm. was willing to give us a, a heavy discount. And so I took a couple courses at Fuller. Actually, the first missions course I ever took was at Fuller. I didn't take one in in my undergrad um, and just fell in love with with Fuller and decided to keep studying and pursuing. Uh, you know, I where I went to undergrad, we didn't have a lot of exciting courses. Um, so to be at Fuller and have classes like uh, the theology of C.S. Lewis or, you know, theology and culture and movies, it, I just I fell in love with it and wanted to continue studying. 
Yeah, you must have um, taken a little Cutter Calloway stuff, maybe, or a little Ryan Bolger stuff like that. Yeah, I took I took a Bolger and um, and yeah, I mean, I just it was an unbelievable. It fuller reignited my passion for learning hmm, for sure. That's cool. Well, let's jump ahead now because I'm interested in how it, it seems a pretty abrupt departure. Then so much of your life, and it seems like the the majority of your twenties was spent pursuing this this passion for ministry and uh now you're a full-time fishing guide uh with your own business so i mean uh, uh, in addition to being derailed by covid um you know still you still could have stayed on the on the ministry and and missionary train but you got off it so what's uh what what provoked that for sure you know i my wife and I too, when we moved overseas, the first eight months we were there were, were super tough, um, especially on my wife, just the isolation. Uh, we were living in a Muslim country. And so, and I, I had already had quite a bit of um, language from, from previous time living there. So it was tough. Um, a lot of just based on culture and me knowing the language, uh, she just had a lot more isolation there. And it was, it was just tough being married there. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we kind of realized coming home, we were forced out because of COVID and we realized pretty quickly, well, we're not going back. Uh, And that was a huge existential crisis for me. Um, I mean, you've grown up in, in the church world or, you know, that to feel like that was your calling. Um, I I remember being young and thinking this is why God created was to be a missionary to these, these unreached peoples. And so, and to work for so many years towards that and to hear, um, you know, you hear all the time how many, how few missionaries succeed in staying in a place and just always telling myself, I'm not going to be that one. I'm, I'm going to die on the field. And then to not, um, it was, it was really tough. It was, I mean, I've, I've never struggled with depression or anxiety in my life. And there was a good year and a half, two years where that was really, really heavy. After you got back or even yeah. while you were over there? For me, it was when we got back. Yeah. Um, and then to have COVID on top of it, I mean, you're not you're not applying for any jobs during COVID or yeah. doing anything significant. So it was tough. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I really didn't know what to do next. I still pursued some ministry jobs. Actually, the, Cali- the church in California that my wife and I had met offered me a job. It sounded great. Um, we were we were considering taking it, and uh, I just really felt like we had this community in Florida. We had this piece of property that was unbelievable, um, and the idea. And I love that church in California. I love the people there, but the idea of leaving this wild place, this natural place we live, to go spend twenty five hundred dollars a month on a, a one bedroom apartment. <laughs> Yeah. In Southern California it was hard to swallow and I didn't think I didn't think that was right. I actually ended up working for an organization called Young Life for mm-hmm. a little while here. Yep. Um loved it. Uh I I love the people there. I love the mission. Um I still have a huge passion for student ministry. Uh but the ministry side of it I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't do the fundraising. I couldn't do so much of it wasn't just teaching students about Jesus and loving them and caring for them. Um, and I kind of reckoned that I could do that without getting paid. Yeah. 
you know, and I still do. I, we have a group of students that come over every Sunday and if they need something, they know my wife or I are a phone call or text away and we'll be there. Um, they know that we love them. And so I can work less hours as a fishing guide and still be able to support my family and still be able to be a part of a church community and love students and not have to do all the other stuff that I don't want to do. Yeah. 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 Well now look, I would think that, um, it would seem like, Oh, I should just pause here. Cause Brandon's probably, I think we're still getting that, um, beard rubbing sound. Are we? Yeah. A little bit or like, do you, are you wearing earbuds like Apple earbud? Ear, um, thanks. You can even just hold it out and it probably won't, you won't have a problem. Okay. Um, well now look, I'm, I think, um, a lot of us who love the outdoors would love to make it into our full-time job. You know, I, I mean, if I could make a living guiding pheasant hunts, I would do it, but it's virtually impossible to make a living at that unless you own, you know, a, a 5,000 acre ranch in South Dakota and you stock it with birds and it's just not possible. So I know it's a little different guiding for fishing because waters are public. Like anybody can, you, you can't own the water. You can go out there as, if, if you're licensed, you can go out there like any other guide, but still I would think economically it would be hard to get started doing it. Um, so like, how did you make that decision that you were just going to jump in and make, try to make a go at, at, at being a captain, making a living at this? Yeah, it, it's super tough. Um, I mean, I think even the fact that the waters are public and there are so many people out there, um, I mean, even that makes it tough. Um, so I, you know, I had had worked for, I had other jobs on the side and I'd kind of been doing this halfway, you know, putting in part time. And, um, you know, finally at some point we'd had enough money saved and, you know, I could, I could step back from some of my other jobs and really put a full-time effort into it. And, you know, I talked to my wife and she was extremely supportive, but it was really scary. <laughs> and for a I few bet. months, it was, it was really tough. And, you know, even the fishing side, I, you know, I grew up fishing the waters that I fish now. And, um, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about conservation, but they have declined rapidly, huh. uh, you know, over the last 15 years since I was in high school to now, I mean, it's just, it, it's crazy. What's um, declined the, the number of fish, the habitat, the quality of the water, all of the above. All of the above. I mean, we, we, so I fish an area called Mosquito Lagoon and it, it at one point was the redfish capital of the world. And that's the, the target species. Um, and just through pollution from runoff from people's yards. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of water problems in Florida from the sugar mills. And I mean, believe it or not way from the Everglades to Okeechobee makes its way up here. And it's killed water quality. It's killed seagrass and fish have just moved out. Um, we have had, for a long time, we enjoyed kind of this closed ecosystem down here uh, where fish didn't migrate. They were resident fish. Um, and there's still, don't get me wrong, it's still unbelievable fishing down here. Uh, it's just not what it used to be. Yeah, um, yeah. We've had to really adjust our expectations. If someone came down here and fished 15 years ago, they'd probably see 500 fish in a day and get, you know, 40 of them in the boat. Um, now, this today, if we see 60 fish in a day and we get four or five of them in the boat, that's a great day. 
Um, so it's definitely changed. And there's a lot more boats on the water. There's a lot more pressure on the fish. So it's just, it's a tougher fishery. What do you, um, what do you attribute that to that? There are more people fishing, even though there are less fish. Is it, is it becoming more popular? Um, you think it's with the ease of travel or, or more just a bigger population in Florida now or what? Yeah, I think, you know, COVID played a big part in it. Obviously Florida was pretty lax with COVID. And Mm -hmm. so everyone, their brother went out and bought a boat. If they couldn't afford a boat, they got a kayak or a stand up paddleboard and people just started kind of re-enjoying the outdoors. Um, definitely a lot of people are moving to Florida, I think with social media and YouTube. It is, it's a very technical type of fishing we do here. And so learning that has just become easier. I mean, there's a freedom of information on the internet. And so, uh, so yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of factors that have contributed to it. So let's get into this a little bit. First of all, describe for me a redfish. So a redfish is an inshore species. They live in all the way from up to Virginia, all the way across to Texas. Um, and so it's cool because you can fish them in a lot of different areas, a lot of different scenarios. They, they're a very powerful fish. Um, they eat crustaceans. They make cool noises. They grunt underwater a little bit. Mm-hmm. They have like a, a big alien-looking tooth thing in the back of their throat where they can crush oysters and crabs and uh, clams. And, and they're, they're, they're really a cool fish. They've, growing up, they were kind of a normal fish to me. And uh, they have... They have quickly become just, I mean, I'm obsessed with them. They, they are the fish that I want to catch. Uh, I, I see one in the water in the wild and I mean, it gets my heart pounding. Um, Hmm. they school up. So there's days that we'll see 50 fish in a school. Um, they do, they do something called tailing. And so they'll actually stick their head down in the ground and they're searching for crabs or for shrimp or for oysters and their tail will actually come out of the water. And so so a lot of the waters that I'm fishing in, you know, we're fishing in six to 10 inches of water. Hmm. Um, and so we're seeing these fish tail and they're, you know, it's almost like they're waving at you, this golden tail with the blue ridge. Um, they have a spot on the backside of them. Some of them have a hundred spots. Some of them have three spots. And so every fish is different. And uh, I mean, it's, they're just super exciting to stalk in the shallows. Um. Are you, uh, well, how big are they? How big are the fish you're getting in the boat? So, I mean, they can be anywhere from 10 inches all the way up to like the biggest one I've ever caught was 48 inches, 48 inches. Holy smokes. And are you, does, or do we eat them? You or can catch I, and release. So I'm catching release. Actually the area that I fish, they, this year put a moratorium on redfish. And so oh. it's all catch and release, which for me, I love, um, they're, redfish, don't get me wrong, they're delicious, but there are plenty of other species that you can go catch that aren't aren't game fish. Um, okay. So so yeah, everything pretty much every charter I go on, I haven't I haven't ran a charter in two years where we kept fish. Hmm. Now tell me about fish. your boat. So I have an eighteen foot beaver tail. Um, they actually started in Minnesota, believe it or yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of them before. Yep. Yeah, a long time ago, and they've they've changed. Over owners a few times they're a florida company now but they it's an unbelievable boat i mean i can run in probably six inches of water going full speed i can push pull and maybe less um and i i guess people might not know push pulling so i actually have a platform above my motor 
-hmm. and I have a 21 foot carbon fiber pole that that's when, when we're targeting these fish, I'm on the back pushing us through the water, uh, to stalk them. And so, I mean, what you want in a boat here is you want something that runs shallow, that is somewhat stable and that's quiet. Mm -hmm. Um, you don't want, if water's hitting the side of it, I mean, the redfish can feel it from a hundred feet away and they'll, they'll spook off. Wow. How do you keep a boat quiet? I mean, if there's waves, there's waves. Is yeah, it how I the mean, boat sits in the water? For sure. So a lot of it has to do with hull design, um, okay. not having straight edges. You know, they've, there's been a lot of technology over the last 30 years that has gone into making these skiffs very quiet and very shallow. And Beavertail does it great. I don't think I'll ever own a different boat. Now tell me about the motor that uh, is propelling that boat. So I just have a, I have a 60 horse Suzuki on it. And okay. so, you know, my boat's not made to go super fast. Me loaded down with gear and one or two other guys were doing maybe 32 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. um, but it can jump up. I, you have a four blade prop on it, which allows you to kind of jump out of the water. So there's a lot of areas that I may only have 10 inches to get up on plane and a boat length or two, I have to be up and going. And wow. so my motor's kind of designed to have that low end torque to be able to jump up us out, out of the water and get going. I mean, it's hard to imagine a boat uh, for for a Minnesotan here because we don't really have the flat bottom boats, you know, but to to think of a boat going 30, 35 miles an hour loaded down with uh, with anglers and gear in 10 inches of water, dude, that would <laughs> that would get my heart racing. Oh, my gosh. I love taking people. And when they see some of the stuff that I'm running through, because I mean, the water's gin clear. Yeah. And I mean, there's days where I'm, I'm flying full speed past a stork and we can see his knees, you know, sticking <laughs> out of the water. I mean, it's just, it's scary skinny and it's, it's really fun. Does the, now you're in the intercoastal, you're not out in open sea. Do, it, there must be some difference with the tide on those, on those water levels. There is, but where we're at, we're so far from an inlet that the tide doesn't affect uh, the lagoon that I fish very much. Really interesting. It's, you know, it's maybe, so if I'm, you know, 20 miles north of here and I'm close to the inlet, we can get a three or four foot tidal swing. Whereas where I'm at, you know, it's maybe six inches. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, we don't get much tide. And then what, um, what kind of uh, fishing are you doing? Are you bait casting? Are you fly fishing? I mean, or do you do it all? Yeah, so I'm, I specifically like light tackle and fly fishing. Okay. Um, you know, for me, catching a redfish on fly is the pinnacle of what you can do out of a skiff. Hmm. Um, but I love catching them on spinning rods. I, you know, I do have a very niche clientele that I'm searching. Um, and you'll get this with hunting. I try to explain this to people, you know, the type of fishing I do is like, you know, there's deer hunting in a tree stand, drinking beer with a feeder mm -hmm. 20 feet away and a 270 in your lap. And you're just waiting for a deer to show up. And that's great. And you can do that fishing and sit under a bridge with some live bait and wait for a big fish to come. What I do is more like you're on the ground stalking a deer with a bow and arrow. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, we're in really shallow water. The fish are extremely spooky. Um, so we're making, we're either casting very small live bait at them, uh, we're, or small artificials or, or a fly is best because it lands so light, um, in the water that that you're going to see the fish that you're going to catch before you catch it. Wow. And you, and most of the time you see it eat. I mean, you'll watch your fly land. You'll, you'll give it a couple twitches, a couple bumps, and you'll watch the fish 
scoot towards it and and swallow your bait and it's it's really exciting um how do you find these the the this niche clientele who are looking to uh basically hunt for fish with you that's the tough part it's uh you know i i i'm kind of an old soul i up until owning this business i did not have social media um if it were up to me i would like the only you're like the (laughs) only gen z are you a millennial or gen z you must be a millennial i guess you're you're millennial you're a late millennial yeah you're like the only millennial with no social media, bro. I, you know, I'm late to the party and sadly I'm on it now. <laughs> uh, you know, I wish it was the 1950s when you just hung out by the boat dock and waited for people to show up. Right. But right. unfortunately, that's not the case anymore. Um, so it's a lot of social media I've had to learn. Luckily, being a youth pastor for years and my wife's pretty savvy, you know, figuring out how to find clients, you know, I have a website, I have, you know, all the social media stuff. I'm even doing a buddy and I are working on a little bit of a YouTube channel. So, um, you know, that's how you get discovered and then word of mouth and hopefully repeat customers. Your logo is kind of like, I don't know. It's like a, gr- a little grateful dead thing or what <laughs> Darkwaterfishingcharters.com, which we'll link in the show notes. Um, tells a little bit about you, but explain that logo to me. Yeah, I, you know, I, there's nothing deep behind it other than that's just kind of my personal style. Um, I'm, I'm covered in tattoos. I've always kind of been the saying I'm edgy sounds lame. I I was edgy for Bible college, I guess, you know, for a conservative (laughs) Bible college. Yeah. Um, but I, I love the, the, you know, I grew up surfing and the surf culture was also always really cool in Florida. And then the fishing culture was a bunch of old guys, uh, mm. you know, Bill Dance looking guys. And so I'm kind of of this generation in Florida that grew up, we all grew up surfing and fishing. And so kind of that surfing rebel style, it, I just, that logo, my buddy made it for me and it, I loved it. Nice. Well, let's, um, I wonder, you, you've just completed a master's of theology and um, at least for now, left the professional paid ministry world for this fishing guide world. But I wonder if you've done any reflection on merging those two. Um, how does your life in the outdoors affect your understanding of theology and God and vice versa? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's a lot of ministry that can be done on an 18-foot skiff. Hmm. Um, you know, I have students that I take out all the time that I'm the product of uh, someone caring about me enough to take me fishing. And now I'm able to feed my family off that. And I think that's unbelievable. Like, it blows my mind to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I come across students that have any interest in that, or even if they don't, just to take them out, it, you know, it's a beautiful thing. Um, I've had clients that we've had, you know, there's not a lot of space between you. There's, there's 17 feet of space between me and my client for six yeah. hours a day in the middle of nowhere. And so, I mean, I've had conversations about the church, conversations about theology. Uh, it's, it's a really cool thing. As far as the merging of the two, I mean, to be honest, I don't really know, know where that convergence will happen. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder, um, I mean, I guess for me, one of the things is this connection between us and the species that we chase, you know, and it's, it's something I've been thinking more about it. It's just so interesting to hear 
like how you've invested yourself in one particular species. Because of course, I'm sure you like fishing other things too. And there's, you know, there are those of us in the outdoors world who are a little more generalists. And then there are those of us who, you know, there's, there's people who only hunt deer. Like you say, mm-hmm. you know, like, 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 Hey, they have their deer camp. They go with their brothers every year. They shoot a deer or two. They drink a bunch of beer. They eat the same thing. They go to the same bar. But then there's other people who are out, you know, every weekend doing something different. And I think even for me as a generalist, I still feel like there's like one type of hunting that I've become very adept at. And I'm like serious enough about and good enough at that I could really teach somebody else how to do it. So I just wonder, you know, what is it about this this mosquito lagoon, this um, particular species of fish? Do, I guess I'll even ask it this way. Do you, do you think there might come a day when you're like, ah, I've done that, bored of it, um, I've kind of mastered this, I'm going to move on to something else? And I hope not. Uh, I mean, what is it? Then tell me, okay, perfect. Then tell me, like, what is it about? That, how how big is that mosquito lagoon? Uh, um, why does it capture your interest so much? Mm-hmm. Why will it, it continue to be interesting to you? Well, I'll say this: I think mosquito lagoon is one aspect of it, but the style of fishing is really the bigger aspect of mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, I still like so, like in the Florida Keys or Belize or Bahamas, you can chase bonefish or permit, and they are a very similar type of situation. They'll both tail. You're both stalking them on the flats. And, and to me, that's, that's very exciting as well. Um, but I've, you know, I, I've fished my entire life. I've been lucky enough to fish all over the world. I've caught carp on fly in the LA river in downtown wow. Los Angeles. I've, wow. <laughs> I've caught trevally and on other sides of the, the earth, you know, I've done trout fishing in streams and it's all, I love it all, but, but that stalking of fish. And I, I'd assume, I mean, you're a hunter, you get that that stalking yeah. side that the, the intimacy of of watching an animal in their natural habitat um and then also the aspect of the fact that that i'm going to put something in front of their face that is foreign to them it's it's not you know and i'll catch fish on bait but to put a fly that i've tied in front of their face and wiggle it in a way that makes them want to eat uh it's unbelievable i mean it's the most exciting sort of fish that I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the guiding aspect of it. Now, one of the problems I had when I started guiding is I, I loved fishing so much <laughs> that I, right. I thought I would have a hard time watching other people do it. And now it's more of a challenge. Like I put people in scenarios where if I were on the front, I would catch every fish we, we have. And that's not to sound arrogant, but just I've done it so sure. much and I know how the fish operate. But to watch, put someone in a scenario and watch them, you know, maybe blow three or four casts and then finally get the right one and get it, mm. I, it's so exciting to me. And it's exciting for people that maybe don't necessarily understand this type of fishing to watch them get the appeal of catching a 30-inch redfish in the shallows as opposed to catching a 45-inch redfish under a bridge. I mean, to mm. see the excitement, it's, I, it still gets my heart pumping after... 30 years of fishing redfish to see a tailing fish. I, I can almost hardly contain myself up on the platform. Mm-hmm. Wow. That sounds amazing. It's uh, it definitely sounds like something I would love to do. I still, frankly, 
I still have a bit of a problem with catch and release ethically. <laughs> and um, because, I mean, what you're describing to me is so much like what, what um, in, in my next book I write about, which I, I got from another uh, theologian who's been a guest on the podcast, this idea of the cycle of predation, that we're in it. And that the problem is when we, when we remove ourselves from the cycle of predation and just like buy our, meat at the grocery store, you know, we're, we're losing touch with really something super important that makes us human. I mean, it's, it's part of being human is that you're a, a, a predator and that other animals are prey. Um, but even predators, you know, are preyed upon. And this is just part of life on this planet. This is what I'm saying. But mm -hmm. uh, the catch and release thing, what's interesting to me is it would be totally foreign to our ancestors. Like if you would have gone, I don't know, 200 years ago, 100 years ago and been like, hey, um, we fish all day and we don't keep any of the fish. And then we <laughs> go to the grocery store and like buy chicken, what, buy skinless chicken breasts or whatever. They yeah. would think that's crazy. Now I get there's also an aspect of it's a resource that is being depleted, right? Which is I, I assume why Florida Fish and Game decided that like in uh, in mosquito lagoon it's all catch and release this year for redfish right correct like you're st you're still allowed to target redfish you're just not allowed to keep them correct and i mean you can go eight miles north and keep redfish oh, okay and so they're, they're not yeah. completely you know banning it for others and look i think uh, everybody i know who fishes does catch and release i mean i catch and release largemouth bass in our lake um and you know, I'm looking across the street at my neighbor's John, who just got back from two weeks fly fishing in Colorado, and I'm sure he didn't catch a uh, he didn't keep a single trout of all the fish he caught and then took pictures of and sent them to me while I'm sitting here in Minnesota and it's snowing, and he's like in the mountains fly fishing. But so I, I'm not. I just am being honest about like it's a bit of a challenge for me the catch and release aspect of it. Um, What's the mortality rate? You must sometimes release a fish and then see it floating belly up on the water 10 minutes later. Yeah, it's so where we're at, that's that's pretty rare. Okay. Um, and a, a, a lot of education goes into that. You know, yeah. they say if a fish is out of the water for more than 10 seconds, it's like 10 times more likely to die. Huh. And so, you know, unfortunately, a lot of social media goes into people wanting to book a guide. And so they want to get that picture. Um, you know, I'm working towards trying to get some sort of water housing where we just lift the fish up and put them right back in. Um, a lot of where we're at, the fish swim off because they don't have a ton of natural predators. Um, we do have dolphin, which will eat them. Okay. And so if I'm fishing an area and I see a dolphin move in, I mean, we're not going to keep pulling fish out of that area and throwing them in for the dolphin to take them. Um, because they're, because they're, at least they're um, so kind of in shock after they get, I mean, even if they're going to recover, they're going to be much easier prey for that dolphin after they've been caught and boated. Right. Absolutely. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And there's, a, I mean, same thing with ethical hunting. There's just so many things that if people understand, like it kills me when I see people pull a trout out of the water and handle them because they have a protective slime all over them yeah. and it, yeah. it, it protects their immune system. So I never use pliers except for trout, you know, I try to not even pull them out of the water. Uh, you know, okay. sometimes we'll keep trout because there is a lot of trout and that's a fish I will keep to eat. And so if you see a picture of 
me holding a trout, that trout probably went home to get eaten. But if it's getting right. released, you know, we're not even taking out of the water. Uh, tarpon is another species that people pull them out of the water and they just can't recover. And so it, it also helps if you get them to the boat quicker. The more you kind of let them run out and wear themselves out and build up lactic acid, which makes the fight more fun, but it also wears out the fish more. If you can get them to the boat quickly and release them, they have a much better chance of surviving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I've been reading. Uh, I just finished a book by Jim Harrison, um, who was a, just one of the greatest outdoors writers of all time. And he fished every year. He fished in the Florida Keys uh, for a month in the winter. And he would, I mean, he talks about these like, you know, hour long, hour and a half long fights with fish. And, and these are massive fish, right? Marlin and stuff, but they're, but still those fish have got to be completely exhausted by the time they get to the boat. Absolutely. And some of those offshore species, you know, you're pulling them up 800 feet from the bottom. And so right. they, they definitely don't survive well, but, but people are learning, you know, tarpon is one of the biggest inshore species that we catch, you know, they get up to 250 pounds. Guys used to fight them for three hours, you know, because of gear and leader material. I mean, they've gone down to some of those fish, they'll get them in, in 15 minutes okay. and they know that's a much better, that fish has a much better chance of, of swimming away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's the season? Do you, do you fish? Are you fishing redfish year round? We are all year long. Uh, Wintertime okay. is the best. You know, our water gets a lot clearer. And so, uh, I mean, this winter, it's been unbelievable. We've had, you know, the water has been gin clear to the bottom, three feet deep. Uh, the fish are schooled up. And it's been really, really good. Summertime, as we get more rain, that means more runoff from people's lawns. And mm-hmm. uh, that means more pollution, more algae bloom. And so we're we kind of in the cycle. Um, we will still be chasing redfish all summer long, but uh, my business changes in the summer to do a lot less of that sight fishing, stalking to a lot more structure fishing for snook or trout or tarpon. Um, okay. You kind of have to adjust. Yeah. So tell me, um, before we go, tell me if, if somebody's going to come down there to Florida and fish with you, what what do they need to think about? Like what gear do they need? What kind of clothing? Um, uh, what should they expect if they spend a day on your skiff with you? Yeah. So I, I mean, as a, as a guide, I have all the gear, all the licensing, everything you need, but I would say if they want to throw a fly, um, make sure that your casting is very good, that you can double haul. Um, fly casters will know what that means that you need to be accurate and you need to be able to get the fly out there far to be able to cast into the wind. Uh, and same thing with spin guys and conventional reels. I mean, it's, it's a very technical type of fishing. And so I hate for people to get on my boat and we have so many opportunities and just because they haven't been able to, they haven't fished very much. They're not able to catch the fish that, that are in front of them. Um, so being, being practiced is great. Uh, and then just dress for Florida sun, a yeah. lot of cover and a lot of sunscreen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool, man. I mean, I would love to come down and do it sometime and, um, sometime. yeah, that would be amazing. Uh, and I'm, I'm guessing, um, I would love it if some listeners get down there to fish with you too. And I'll have, like I said, the link, um, to your website in the show notes and, uh, people can also follow you on Instagram now that you're a social media millennial, <laughs> right? I'm out there. I'm out there. Yes. <laughs> do you ever <laughs> post pictures of your goats or 
You have the 51 chickens you brought home the other day? No, no. My my wife has her own farm Instagram, and so I let her, you know, she's much cuter and, and better for that. <laughs> I'm not very uh, photogenic. What are you going to do with those 51 chickens, bro? I mean, eggs were getting expensive, so I'm, I'm just trying to prepare. Yeah. You know, That's a lot least. of eggs, dude. That's it a is, lot of it eggs. It is. It is. A lot, <laughs> at least for our friends and family, we'll be covered. Yeah, for sure. Uh, 51. I mean, if you got 50, 50 plus chickens laying eggs every day, you're going to be... You're going to be having all your protein needs met just in the <laughs> eggs alone. Absolutely. Well, hey, I really appreciate you reaching out on Instagram. And I'm so glad you like the podcast. And I think it's, you know, I, I um, frankly, I like hunting more than fishing. So it's always, no, it's a good discipline for me to get a guy who's crazy about fishing on the podcast. You know what I'm saying? Because I, I tend toward the, I tend to find the hunters. Uh, I used to fish a lot more. And then once I really got into hunting, I frankly found fishing kind of boring compared to hunting. Um, but the kind of fishing you're doing sounds amazing. The kind of fishing that I still really like to do is going out with my son and doing, uh, fishing for largemouth bass, which is the same. I mean, it's, it's, it's our, it's a similar version of what you're doing in that where the boat is always on the move. We're trying to figure out where the bass are. And then, you know, we're trying to lay a, a topwater lure in front of them, get that big strike, get the tail walk, you know, there's yeah. tons of fun to catch. And they're, they're such a robust species. I think, you know, you can, I, I, I've, I feel like when, when I put them back in the water, that's a fish that's going to survive, you know, um, Absolutely. when I, when a crappie swallows the hook, then you're going to be eating that crappie. There's no, you know, don't be putting that crappie back once it, you see blood coming out the gills. Um, so anyway, all that to say, uh, it's good to get a, a an experienced angler on the podcast here and get us all excited because uh, fishing seasons, well, you fish year round, but up here, man, it's uh, we're chomping at the bit for some open water so we can get out there and fish. That's exciting. Yeah, I, I would love to to fish fish up north i've never done it we got a lot of lakes up here i don't know if you've heard that before but uh, i've heard <laughs> it's the truth it's the truth you come up to the boundary waters with me and we'll fish for smallmouth bass out of a canoe oh, and uh that'll get, your, that, that'll get your heart racing a little bit too to try to fish out of a, with another guy and maybe a dog in the boat we'll really get <laughs> really get that canoe rocking and uh yeah anytime it'd be great well that thanks great. thanks a million and uh let's stay in touch and uh find let's let's find time to get in one another's boats somewhere down the road sounds good looking forward to it tony thank you thanks